tonight we're continuing our one word study by looking at the word confess. I want to begin by reading from the 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse number 32, where Jesus says that everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. That word translated there as acknowledge in the English Standard Version is also the word that's frequently translated as confess. In fact, most of us who probably have that scripture squirreled away in our old memory banks know it as confess because that's the way it is in the King James. Whoever will confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, whoever confesses him will also be acknowledged before the Father. The reverse of that, whoever denies him, he will deny before the Father. Why is confession so important? Why, as our text said that Tristan read just a few moments ago, why does confession lead to salvation? It's perfectly natural when we understand what confession is. So let's talk about that, the definition, beginning with the Hebrew. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated as confess is yadah. That's used over 100 times in the Old Testament, and it's used in a variety of different ways. But if we could sum up the definition of that word in just one word, it basically means to acknowledge, just like we saw that translation from Greek in Matthew chapter 10. It essentially means to acknowledge. So it's used in the sense of acknowledging who God is, that is, praising him because of his nature. The 134th Psalm, verse number two, for instance, lift up your hands toward the sanctuary and yadah, praise the Lord. To praise God's name, that's to acknowledge him or to confess him. It's used in the sense of acknowledging what God has done. That is giving thanks to him. The 105th Psalm, verse one, is a good example here. Oh, give thanks, that's Yadah. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. So expressing gratitude, thanksgiving, is acknowledging God by declaring what he's done. It's also used in the sense of acknowledging our sin. And when it's used that way, it's generally translated as confession. So in the 32nd Psalm, verse 5, we see it that way. I said, I will confess, Yadah, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. The New Testament word translated as confess is the Greek homologeo. That's a compound word. It's formed of the word homo, which you probably recognize. That means the same. Logeo is a verb that means to speak or to say. So essentially, this word means to say the same thing. The idea is of verbalizing agreement with 
someone or with an idea or concept. So it's used in the sense of agreeing to do a certain thing, and it's translated accordingly, promise. You see it that way, the first one. It's only translated as promise generally once in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, verse 7, where Herod Antipas has promised anything Salome wants because of the dancing that she's done. It's translated then sometimes in terms of praising or giving thanks, that is, agreeing with God's greatness. So, for instance, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where the Hebrews writer talks about the fruit of our lips, that sacrifice of praise, which acknowledges, confesses, praises his name. It varies from translation to translation. But by far, 17 of the 21 occurrences, I think, in the King James, for instance, by far, it is most frequently translated as confess, or occasionally then as profess. Whether that's agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God, as in the text that we read a few moments ago, that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Or whether it's agreeing about our sinfulness, confessing our sin. First John chapter 1 and verse 9 where it says if we confess our sins that the Lord's faithful to forgive them. So in other words we put this all together and we see that what these words have in common whether Hebrew or Greek essentially they imply verbalizing acknowledgement or agreement. That means that confession is something that we do it's an action, it's a verb, something that we engage in. But it's not only an action itself that verbalizing the agreement, but it also implies ongoing action on our part that is consistent with what we've said. Uh, for instance, let's say the elders have a meeting and Ken says, we have a problem. And Bobby says, well, I agree with you. It would be natural then for Ken to expect Bobby to want to go along with some solution that he proposes. But if he doesn't want to take any action on it at all, well, then that means that he's not really in agreement, even if he's confessed that he is. His actions deny that confession that he made. Now, incidentally, those were names used at random. There's no real problem that we have that they're in disagreement about. I want to make that clear. <laughs> but that's important for understanding the concept of how confession relates to our salvation, as well as how that confession of Christ relates to our confession of sin. And this idea of confession encompasses a lot of different things, but we can basically sum it up under two headings. One is confession of our faith, and the other is confession of sin. Let's talk about those in turn. First of all, confession of faith. And back to the question we asked at the outset of this lesson. Why does confession lead to salvation? You know, last week we talked about that model that we're all familiar with going back to when we're kids. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Those five steps in the plan of salvation. And much like we saw with repentance, when we think of things solely in terms of that model, and that's what it is, it's a model. Even if we do need to do all of those things, this is just a teaching device. 
When we think of things solely in terms of those steps, it has a tendency to make us think that confession is somewhat arbitrary. That is, I confess because I'm told to confess. I believed and I repented, and now I confess and I'm just climbing my way up the stepladder here. Of course, if you were here last week, you might remember that confession was not actually part of that original five-finger exercise that Walter Scott came up with to teach that original gospel. His five steps were things that we needed to do. Human beings must believe, we must repent, and we must be baptized. And then, in return, God grants three things, the gift of the Spirit, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, which he collapsed into five. He collapsed the spirit and eternal life into one so that he could make it five fingers, one thing for each finger. But at any rate, confession didn't become one of those things that was enumerated until we began to focus in terms of what we must do. That is, making it a plan that we worked and forgetting about what God does in response. That's when here was added in, which, you know, here is redundant. And that's when confess was added too. And interestingly, if you search through the book of Acts, which is where we normally find the uh, examples of conversion, these cases of conversion that we like to point to as patterns, you won't find an example of confession, at least not in the way that we think of it in terms of a thing you need to believe and repent and confess and then be baptized. The only example, and you might have thought of this now and thinking, oh, you're wrong, I can think of one. There is one. Acts chapter 8, in verse number 37, the Ethiopian eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In verse number 37, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Philip says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. If you have a modern translation, you'll notice there is no verse 37. That's not in there, and that's because the oldest and best manuscripts don't have that verse, and the thought is probably that some well-meaning scribe added that in, oh, the second or third century, and it ended up then in a long manuscript chain because he didn't like the way the eunuch left things hanging there. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And of course, then he is baptized, but he wanted to fill in the blanks there. Now, with all of that said, that confession is consistent with later church practice. That's the way we see baptisms transpiring in the second century. And, of course, it's not inconsistent with anything else we read in the New Testament. And as we've seen, other verses connect confession to salvation. We read from Romans 10. We read from Matthew chapter 10. But my point is we shouldn't think of this as just One more step in the list, especially since we really don't have a clear-cut example of doing that in the way we typically think about it. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that it's much more helpful to think of confession the same way we thought of repentance last week, that these things aren't arbitrary. Confession is naturally how we respond to the gospel. Faith is naturally requires some expression. How do we acknowledge, how do we demonstrate that we have that 
trusting, obedient faith that we talked about a few weeks ago. It has to be confessed. It has to be professed. It has to be acknowledged in our words and in our actions. Now, we do that, for one thing, when we make an initial confession, whether the Ethiopian did it in quite that way or not, we do make an initial confession at our conversion, and that's clear. It's clear enough from Romans chapter 10 that was read a few moments ago to remind you here from verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That wording there, I think, pretty clearly indicates some sort of of public confession, uh, some sort of formal practice, in fact. And if you were to read on down through the rest of the text, you'll see that this is a a calling on the name of the Lord. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this calling on his name is in response to hearing that gospel message of salvation. You all know the rest of this. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So on and so forth here. This confession comes in response to hearing the word that's preached. And if you read here, with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved, the faith in your heart is expressed in this confession that you make with your mouth. And the confession corresponds to that faith that you have in your heart. And the belief back in verse number nine is that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The belief is that God raised Jesus from the dead. To declare that Jesus is Lord is to declare our belief in that fact, that God raised him up. It's faith in the resurrection. Of course, when we think about the fact that Jesus is Lord and we think about this particularly in connection with confession, Jesus is Lord also connects to him being Christ, another one of the titles he wears, doesn't it? I think about Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Remember when he reaches the climax of it, he's talked about Jesus being crucified by his audience. God has raised him from the dead and the The climactic moment, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And of course, it was this same Peter preaching that sermon who had once made the confession, Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, after that, Jesus explained what that meant. He said, you're right, Simon. He said he was blessed on account of that. But of course, they had a particular idea of what it meant for him to be the Christ that didn't actually match up with the work he came to do. And so in the immediately following verses, he starts to explain that that means he has to do the work of the Christ. He had to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. He'd be killed and then he would be raised from the dead on the third day. So in other words, when we confess that Jesus is Christ, we're confessing that we believe he did all that, 
that work that he says he has to do that proves he's the Christ. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised up from the dead. And as Christ, he's now Lord. He's at the right hand of God. He's the king. He's the chosen ruler of the world. But as we said, confession implies action. And so we confess not only in our words, but we confess in acts. Baptism, this is the way these things all connect together. See, it's so much more helpful when we think of these things as a total comprehensive response. Baptism is a confession of faith. This is a public demonstration, a public testimony that we believe in the gospel. You submit to baptism only if you have faith in Jesus. And it is a public testimony, a public confession, an acknowledgement of who he is, that he is the king of kings, that we submit to him as Lord. To confess Jesus as Lord means that we make him Lord and master of our lives. And that means we must live lives that are consistent with that confession. We have to practice what we preach. We have to live that confession out. My dad's favorite way of giving the invitation, I've heard him say this maybe a million times. He says this at the conclusion of almost every sermon. He says, if Jesus is not Lord of all of your life, he's not Lord at all in your life. And that's what we're talking about here, confessing Jesus in the way that we live. And so that reminds us, again, just like we saw with repentance last week, remember when we think of steps, you don't step on a step more than once, you go on to the next one. But that's misleading because repentance isn't a one-time act. You continue to live a penitent life. The same thing is true with confession. We don't just confess Jesus once before we're baptized and then forget about it. We have to continue to live lives that confess him, not only in what we say, but in the way that we live. We confess him and we keep on confessing him. If we claim that he's Lord, but then we live lives in rebellion to him, what we're proving is that we aren't really in agreement with that claim. Remember, that's the root of what to confess means, to be in agreement. We make ourselves out to be liars because we don't live out what we claim to believe. Of course, with all that said, yes, we need to live lives that match up with our confession. That doesn't require us to be perfect in order for us to confess Jesus. And in fact, we realize that that's an impossibility. Even if Jesus is the Lord of our lives, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall along the way. We're going to make mistakes. And that is where confession of sin comes in, this other primary usage of confession. It's bringing our lives back into alignment with that confession of faith that we've made. And in fact, these two things are related because it's our confession of faith in Jesus and in who he is that leads to our confession of sin. Think about Isaiah. You know this story. I've referenced it a time or two in the time I've been here. 
Isaiah chapter 6, his call to be a prophet, he sees the Lord in his throne room high and lifted up, and what does Isaiah do? He cries out, he says, woe is me, I'm undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, when Isaiah saw God as he was and confessed him, it prompted him to confess his sin, because he saw just how imperfect he was compared to that holy and pure God. His confession of sin came as a direct consequence of his confessing God. So all of that means we need to confess our sins if we're going to be able to continue to confess that Jesus as Lord. And this, too, is expressed in a few different ways in Scripture. That is, we confess our sins in different ways. Uh, we confess to God alone. It's frequently used that way. True repentance requires that we confess our guilt to him. So you think about 1 John chapter 1, where John talks about walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... John says that if we say we have no sin, we're liars. We've all sinned. But on the other hand, he says if we confess our sins, God's faithful, he'll forgive us of those sins. That's what we're talking about here. If we confess, he'll forgive us. Walking in the light, living out that confession that Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that when we stray, we continue to confess our sins to him. Now, sometimes, a second way that confession is used, sometimes it requires that we confess our sins to the entire church. That's particularly true if our sin has created some sort of public scandal. And the best example of that is the well-known situation of the fellow in Corinth who had his father's wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this, and this was uh, so egregious, nothing had been done about it, they actually needed to withdraw from him. But then you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll see that evidently this man had repented. And Paul says, you need to let him back in. But of course, that required a, a public acknowledgement. Everyone had to know that he'd repented in order for him to be back in this right state. But we're also told, thirdly, to confess our sins to each other. James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This isn't necessarily about confessing sins before the church, um, making, <laughs> making the perp walk down here to the front, as I sometimes call it. Uh, sometimes that's necessary, as we've said. But that's not really what James is talking about. He's talking about being vulnerable here. He's talking about this willingness to say to, to Philip, man, I'm really struggling with this. I have this sin in my life or this temptation that I'm dealing with. I want you to pray for me. I'm having a hard time. And for us to have that willingness to, to be open about the struggles that we're having, I know that's not easy, and I, I know that none of us really do that the way that we ought. But I, I, wonder, I wonder how different the church would be if we tried to do that, if we didn't act like we were perfect, but instead remembered that we're imperfect but forgiven and we're willing to share these struggles that we have with each other. I think it'd be a, a powerful thing. And that's what James is talking about when he's talking about confessing our sins. 
In every case, whether we're talking about confession that we make to each other that way, whether it's confession of a public sin, or whether it's confession that we make to God alone, confession should bring about real change. Don't be like that old story about the four preachers who were meeting together. Preachers in a particular town, they were friendly. They met together for coffee on a regular basis. And one time one of them said, you know, we tell members of our congregations to come and confess sins to us. A lot of times we hear about their problems, and that's a good thing. Confession is good for the soul. So what if, with no one else to turn to, we talked about the struggles that we're having with each other? They agreed that they'd do that. And so one of them confessed, you know, I, I have a real problem with gambling. I really like to play cards. Sometimes I'll even cut out of the office at the church building. I'll go down to the racetrack because I like it so much. Another one said, I really like to drink whiskey every now and then. I don't get drunk, but I just like to have some good sipping whiskey. I I actually keep a bottle hidden away in my desk at the church building. I dip into it from time to time after hours. Third preacher says, well, you know, I, I really struggle with smoking. I go out on the back porch and smoke a good cigar from time to time because I don't want anyone to come into the house and know that I've been doing it. They turned to the fourth one, and he was reluctant. He, he didn't want to share. And they pressed upon him. They said, no, no, now we've told you all our vices. You need to tell us what yours is. And he said, I'm a terrible gossip, and I can't wait to leave here. If we do like that, if we confess our sins, and yet it doesn't make any difference, we persist in them, we continue to live in them, our confession is empty, and it's hollow. It's every bit as empty and hollow as that confession that Jesus is Lord. Confessing our sin is open agreement. It's acknowledgement with the fact that my life isn't what it needs to be and I need to make some changes. The question for all of us this evening is do you have any confession that you need to make? If you've never confessed that Jesus is Lord, I would urge you to do that tonight. But as I look around this room, I believe everyone here already is a Christian. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess in order to be back in that right relationship with God? If so, we invite you. Take the opportunity you have to do it now while we stand and while we sing.